evening. Revelation chapter 9. At this point in the Revelation, we've moved uh, from the breaking of the seals. The seventh seal then became seven trumpets, and we stopped at the end of chapter 8 with the sounding of the fourth trumpet, and we pick things up now in chapter 9 with the sounding of the fifth trumpet and it's almost as if as if as we come now uh, to this particular chapter that the Lord in essence declares to the world uh, you want Satan you want the devil uh, more than me uh, then Satan you will have but it will not be as much fun as you think it will be I think it's it's always sobering to me as a Christian uh, within this culture I don't consider myself to be better than anyone else I am saved and, uh, but I know that that was by grace. And I know I see things in a certain way now because of Holy Spirit's uh, place in my life and all. But I see this world that rebels against God. I watch our nation rebel against God, fighting against His law, fighting against His commandments, fighting against His righteous standard, fighting against even Merry Christmas. I mean, it's, it's insane uh, what's going on. And, and as I watch all of it, there is way down deep inside of me the knowledge that one day God will remove the very powerful, His presence in the world of His Spirit in His church. And the world will get uh, exactly what it wants, but it is not what they are anticipating. Evil and the devil and those that align with all of that, it can only be what it is, and, and even the uh, feeble, minuscule pleasure that it is, as it has good to fight against, as it has holiness to fight against. And, and what they don't understand is that the very group of people, Christians, that they're fighting against and against the God of the Bible and against His, His Word, that if they are successful in what it is that they're fighting, uh, uh, wanting to defeat and, and fight, it'll turn into the worst nightmare that they can ever imagine. And that's, that's exactly what it is that's, that's going to, to happen. And the fifth angel sounded, we're told in verse 1, And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And so John looks, and as this revelation is unfolding, and he sees a star fallen from heaven. Now notice, he does not say that he sees a star fall from heaven. He sees a star that has already fallen from heaven. It's fallen from heaven prior to this. Well, sometimes people can look and say, well, in chapter 8, verse 10, you know, you spoke about a great star that fell from heaven there and you gave it the literal meaning of a literal star falling from heaven and then why is this something different well you notice in the second part a second sentence of the verse that John then tells us to him talking about a person now not a literal star to him was given the key to the bottomless pit so 
this person that's referred to here, this star that is, is fallen, appears to be the same person that's referred to in verse 11 of, of chapter 9 uh, as the king uh, over these, this demonic horde that we're going to be studying in just a moment. And, I, and it seems to, to uh, point unmistakably uh, here, this star, uh, to Satan himself, to Lucifer. Now remember, there are, there are about 404 verses in the book of Revelation. And uh, 278 of those verses are clear references to the Old Testament. This book of Revelation unfolds to the person that is, is willing to interpret it in, in light of, of the prior revelation of the Old Testament. And it's interesting when we read of Satan's fall in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, and there it's declared, how you are fallen from heaven, same words, isn't it, as verse 1. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Remember when the disciples came back to Jesus and they were excited. He had sent them out uh, to do ministry and they came back and they were all excited about the fact that they got to push demons around, you know, and cast demons out of people and all of this. And we even did this and all. Uh, and, and, all. And, and Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he spoke to them then, don't get so excited about having authority over the devil and over his reign. Here's something to get excited about, that your name is written in the book of life. And that's what we're excited about tonight in, in our lives. And, and so, but Jesus refers here and he, and he calls Satan, describes him as uh, one who has fallen like lightning from heaven. Now notice that uh, the devil here, this star that's fallen, he is given a key to the bottomless pit. And the bottomless pit uh, refers to in Scripture the abode of demons, the abode of, of fallen angels. In Luke chapter 8, uh, verse uh, 31, when Jesus had cast, was about to cast the demons out of uh, the man whose name was Legion because he had so many demons inside of him there in Gadara. And uh, Jesus is conversing uh, with, with the demons, and they beg Jesus that he would not command them uh, to go out of this man uh, into the abyss. And it's speaking of this bottomless pit. It is this bottomless pit is where Satan will be confined during the thousand-year reign of uh, Jesus uh, on the earth. Revelation uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, we're told that Satan is then bound at the end of the great tribulation period, and he is cast uh, by an angel into, verse 3, the bottomless pit, and he is shut up there and a seal put uh, on that so that he couldn't deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were over. And so it is the, it is the dwelling place of, of fallen angels. It's interesting, isn't it? It's always been fascinating to me that somewhere on the face of the earth, uh, there is a locked, when it talks here about he's got a key to the bottomless pit, he's given the key to the bottomless pit, he does not possess it until God allows him uh, to have it. But, but there is somewhere on the face of this earth, there's a lock or a controlled shaft that leads right down into the abyss. It leads right down into the abode of demons. Wouldn't it be uh, weird if you bought a new house and uh, found out in your bed? Won't matter because this all happens in the Great Tribulation. But talk about hurting the value of the neighborhood. But somewhere there is that. 
in, uh, in, in the world. Now, concerning this holding area of, of demons, the New Testament tells us, Jude uh, verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, they fell with Satan in his rebellion, but left their own habitation. He, that is God, has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And, and Jude writes by the Spirit of God that there are fierce, fierce demons who are being held uh, and, and of necessity of being held. If they were let loose, they would simply destroy uh, everyone. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, <clears throat> excuse me, Peter writes, And if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell into the abyss and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So it's important to notice that Satan can only do what he's allowed to do. Sometimes there's this idea that he's in charge of things during the Great Tribulation. He's not in charge of anything. He, he can't open up this abyss uh, until he's given a key and allowed to open that abyss. God's in charge of the universe. He's in charge of the world. And it's a wonderful thing when he's in charge of our, our own lives. And so human history, there's no doubt about it how it's going to end. The devil is in no, you know, kind of place where uh, this thing ending the way that God is going to determine that it ends. It's not in doubt in any way uh, by virtue of the devil. He can only do uh, what he is given room to, to do. So God's plan is not in any danger of being derailed by the devil. Now notice what the devil does here in verse 2. And he opened the bottomless pit. He opens that up. And as a result of opening it up, smoke begins to come out of the pit, John sees, and it's like the smoke of a great furnace. If you've ever been around a furnace, and here it gets an opening, and the heat and the smoke coming out, kind of like maybe like a volcano, as, as things have been opened. Not a literal volcano, but that kind of you know, power and heat and all coming out of, uh, out of the center of the earth there. And the sun and the, and the air were darkened because of the so much smoke that came out of this great uh, pit. And so here it is as it, as it all comes forth. People joke about uh, hell, and the comedians do, and all those things, but um, there won't be a lot of joking about it uh, at this time. It's not that funny. It's not funny at all. It's a terrible place uh, to end up. And, and even uh, the, the demons don't want to be there. Now you think about that. <laughs> they don't even want to be there. But it's, it's uh, too bad for them on that. But we have a choice related uh, to it. Now notice as the smoke pours out and, and everything, just when you think it can't get any worse than that, it does, verse 3. And then out of the smoke, locusts came uh, upon the earth. Now, uh, the, uh, uh, so this, uh, kind, don't, don't view literal little tiny locusts. We're going to describe them in just a moment. They're very uh, odd creatures. They're clearly demonic creatures. Um, they're not regular locusts because when they come forth to destroy, they do not destroy what a normal locust destroys. In just a moment, we're going to see that they're uh, prohibited from eating any of the greenery, the trees, and that kind of thing, the normal, uh, you know, diet of, of, a, of a locust, and they're going to give themselves to, to stinging and, and tormenting uh, mankind. So you've got this demonic horde that to John looks like locusts coming up out of the earth. There's power... Uh, 
to them was given power as scorpions of the earth have power. So this terrible satanic uh, army of demons comes out uh, in the ancient world, even today when they get unleashed. But we uh, try to have some marginal control over it today. But in ancient times, when a horde of locusts came through, they just ate everything. Uh, the destru- they were merciless. They would eat up everything in their path. The destruction would be total in terms of everything in their path. And what a regular uh, horde of locusts would do to the greenery of the land, this is what this demonic horde of locusts is going to do in, in terms of, of man and, and what it is that's going on in the world at this time. They're just going to go through and devastate uh, everything. Now the locusts, we're told there, are given power as uh, scorpions of the earth have power. So we know already we're not talking about a locust because you've got a locust now that is able to sting uh, like, like a scorpion. And then notice in verse 4 they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So they don't go out and eat grass and greenery or any of that kind of thing. They go after mankind. There's one group of mankind that they cannot touch, and that is a group that God has sealed. Who did he seal? From earlier in the chapter, the 144,000 of the male virgin Jews there, as, as we saw earlier. So they're protected from this demonic horde, and they're the only group that's protected from uh, that demonic uh, uh, horde. And they were given, verse 5, and they were not given authority to kill men, but to torment them for five months. The torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days men will seek death, but will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. And so they come in, and they, they've got boundaries placed upon them. This is what they're to do. They uh, have the authority to uh, not give an authority to kill men, which means that they, uh, uh, they probably would have if they, without this limitation placed upon them. Uh, but they can't kill man, but they can torment him for, for five months. And their torment is like the torment a person feels when they've been stung by a scorpion. Never been stung by a scorpion, uh, got stung uh, by a wasp uh, one time, and uh, I'll, I'll just be, be satisfied with that. Boy, did that hurt pretty quick. Whew. So, uh, so if you think I'm sissified, uh, you know, and not wanting to be bit by a scorpion, then uh, don't you judge me. Don't, I'm, I'm just kidding. Anyway. So for the, the, the length of their uh, kind of ministry, so to speak, is five months, which interestingly is the length of the life of, of a locust. The locust lives for about five months, and their typical lifespan runs from May through September. Very, very painful uh, uh, sting. And here the devil and the whole demonic realm, they show their true colors when they come forth and their desire to hurt and destroy uh, mankind. Jesus said concerning the devil, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Satan always hides the hook when he's trying to hook people. But he's, the, but, and so he lures people with a lot of different things. But he's got one thing on his mind and that is to destroy people. And not just destroy them physically, but that mankind would be suckered into following him 
into the uh, eternity that he is going to find himself in the middle of rather than in the eternity that God desires for us. It's very, very interesting. And the first time I uh, saw this as a new Christian and all, I mean, it was just horrifying in, in one sense in that for five months on the complete face of the earth, death takes a holiday. Now, normally, in a normal circumstance, imagine if in, in human history there was a five-month period in which no one died. That would be a, a cause for great joy and, uh, and rejoicing over that. But here in this point in time, the fact that there is uh, no death for the, for the five months is, is a curse upon the people that are, are here because the effect of the torment of these locusts is so horrible that men will seek to die and not be able to find death. Death disappears from the earth. Man will seek death, desire death, but death, and, and interesting at the end of verse 6, it will flee away from them. A person can attempt to take their life with a gun or slitting their wrists or doing whatever, automobile accident, all ki whatever kinds of things. And a person can attempt to kill themselves and the soul will not leave the body for five months. It will not vacate the body for five months. Nothing can release a person from it. And so uh, a horrifying time on the earth. Now, the, the description uh, of these locusts is now given in verse 7. Concerning their shape, the shape of the locusts was like horses. Now, John knows what horses look like, and when he's seeing a horse, he says it's a horse. But this, this is not exactly uh, a, a horse. It's not like anything he's ever seen before, but the closest thing he can get come to describing it is a horse. So he says the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. He doesn't know that it is gold, but it looks like gold. So maybe because they wear these crowns, maybe it's an indication that they have dominion or they're able to rule the earth uh, for these five months with their torment. Or it could indicate that these demons are kind of a special army of demons, that they have a higher authority than the regular demons, and there are ranks within the demonic realm. Paul speaks to us about it when he talks about spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. And so maybe they have a crown, differentiates them from the rank and file demon in terms of their power and fierceness, and, and yet they are still underneath the king, under, underneath Satan, who is uh, above uh, them all. He says in verse seven also that their faces were like the faces of men and so these creatures have uh, human-like um, characteristics maybe human-like uh, intelligence they had hair like women's hair and so they have the characteristics of both men uh, and women that uh, that are uh, about them and maybe this uh, speaks about as you the the hair of, of a woman speaks of an outward beauty associated with these uh, demons and and so often that's the way that it is with evil in the world it has an outward beauty to it but it's, it's it's working for our destruction. Their teeth was like, again, not exactly like, but it's kind of like, you know, um, lion's teeth, so terrifying and fierce. And, uh, you know, maybe Spielberg, I don't know who, you know, where they go to get these 
creatures that they come up with sometimes, but it can't be worse than what's right here in the Bible in the demonic realm on things. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. So they've got some kind of a defense on them. They're not easy to kill if you're able to kill them at all. The sound of their wings, so they have wings. And when they apparently when they use their wings or rub their get wings together, it's like the sound of chariots with many horses run uh, into battle. And so uh, when, when these, these demonic beings start to use their wings, I mean, it's just a uh, lose control of everything kind of terror that, that grips people as, as a result of it. And they had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men. For five months, they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, and this is the one that is over the demonic horde, whose name in Hebrew is uh, uh, Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. And uh, both Abaddon and Apollyon uh, mean destroyer. And that's the name for the devil, is that he's a destroyer. And why does John take and write this down and, and declare uh, the devil to be a destroyer in Hebrew and a destroyer in Greek? Because that's what he is in any language. That's what he is to any people, to Jew, to Gentile. That's all he wants to do with people, is to destroy people's lives. He comes as an angel of light. He sends his ministers as angels of light. But his desire is to destroy people. Now, be very, very careful here in, in all of this. If you're tempted to think that all of this represents cruel and unusual punishment on the part of God toward the human population of the world at this time. Because in reality, it is pure, pure, pure grace on the part of God. And what God is doing is He is giving the people that are still on the earth at this time a five-month taste of what hell is going to be like. A worse torment that, than these demons or any kind of physical thing that can happen to us in this world. And once a person ends up in hell, ends up in an eternal lake of fire, the inability to escape it by death does not go on for five months. It goes on forever and ever and ever. There's no death in hell. There is no death in eternity no hope of escape from it through death. And here is God in an effort to get them to repent of their rebellion against him. He takes and gives them a taste of what they're headed into for eternity unless they would repent and they still had room to repent. Never ever. I, one of the great advantages that I had when I came to know the Lord, and I know that many are with you, are, are, are the same as me in that is that I knew even before I came to know him but certainly once I did is that he's way smarter than me and that he's way more loving than I am and way more gracious than I am and I don't challenge his ways I, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to tell us everything for us to know 
that what he does is, is right and, 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 uh, and it is holy and it is gracious and it is loving. Don't, don't ever doubt the wisdom or the love of God behind all that you read about in the great tribulation. Every single step of the way, he is working and working and working to try and get through to these people that they need to repent of their sin and they need to turn to his son for salvation. And just like he tried to get through Pharaoh in the Old Testament, one plague after another after another, he is still trying to get through to the people of the earth at this time. And he knows he's got to keep ratcheting things up to get some of their attention. Then notice in verse 12, John declares that one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after this. Great. <laughs> you know, you ain't seen nothing yet kind of thing. And so here then the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. So once again, we realize as we're going through the revelation, remember that Moses was told as he set up the tabernacle and he set up the furnishings of the tabernacle. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle and the temple that was given to the Jews is merely a model of the scene that's in heaven. And so here John looks into where the, the uh, golden altar, it's, it's gold in heaven, it was a bronze altar on the earth, and uh, it was where the sacrifices were offered. And, and so here you have God's holiness and, and uh, demonstrated or, or uh, represented here in the golden altar. And, and now his holiness, his judgment against sin is, is going to pour forth the holiness of, of heaven. Now going to come into contact with the wickedness of, world, of the world once again. And, and of necessity it, it, it turns into judgment. And saying to the sixth angel, verse 14, who had the trumpet, released the four angels who are bound. They are bound even to this point in time, up to this point in time, in the great tribulation. And they are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the command is, is given, the instruction to the seventh angel, or the sixth angel, is instructed to release these angels. Now clearly these are fallen angels. These are very, very fierce demons because you don't have to bind or chain uh, true angels, holy angels. It doesn't have to be kept bound. Now, these four angels are so powerful and they are so destructive that it, it, if, if they were released in and of themselves, they would just go through the whole earth and immediately set themselves to destroying every human being that they can. And they're held bound there, we're told, at the great river Euphrates, bound somewhere in the vicinity of modern-day uh, Iraq. Now, the result of the release of these four angels, and so the four angels uh, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. They are released by the time they do their damage, a third of mankind is killed. Now remember back uh, earlier in chapter 6, verse 8, 
as that seal was broken, that a quarter of the earth's population uh, was destroyed at that time. Here a further third uh, is destroyed at this time. Between just these two judgments alone, uh, one half of the world's population is dead as as a result uh, of it. Now, in verse 16, we get a little insight into how these four angels accomplished their uh, destruction. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses uh, in the vision, and those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red. Uh... Help me out there. Hyacinth. Is it hyacinth? I knew it this afternoon. Uh, so hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. So what they do is they don't attack the world in and of themselves. They, they influence demonically an army of the world that numbers 200 million to begin to march through the world and destroy uh, people. It's interesting that in the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the, of the Great Tribulation period, that uh, how the, these armies all end up in the Valley of Megiddo is, is kind of uh, weird because there's a, a revolt that occurs uh, toward the end of, of the Great Tribulation, the very end of the Great Tribulation, down in North Africa against the Antichrist. And uh, in Ethiopia and, and all, and he is incensed at, an, at a rebellion against him. He comes down from the north uh, with his army, uh, apparently out of the realm of Europe, and he uh, defeats this rebellion. He crushes it down in northern Africa. He begins to make his way, and of course he has to cross through Africa to do it. Uh, I mean, through Israel to do it. Israel is the hub for three continents in, in the world. So he crosses through Israel to do it, and then he begins to make his way back up out of the south because he hears about trouble in the north an army coming against him in the north he makes his way back up into Israel and just that time there's an, an army coming from the north uh, apparently out of Russia and at the same time another army coming out of the east where the river Euphrates has been dried up in order to, for this army to come across and at the battle of Armageddon these three armies come together to fight one another but we're told that there is a, a, a that there is three demons that are involved in this battle that are bringing these three armies uh, together they're not under they think they're doing their own thing but they're being demonically led and then when they come together to fight one another when Jesus comes back at his second coming their hatred of him is greater than their hatred of one another and they unite together to fight against him and of course it's a very one-sided battle thankfully and uh, but but the whole point is is that here are the that the, the, these demonic beings can control the leaders within these armies and put this whole thing together and that's what appears to happen here that's very very interesting back in the 1960s and I'm not saying that it's this army at all but in Time magazine they had an article 
there. In fact, it was May 21st, 1965, that China at that time boasted that it, it could field a conventional army of 200 million men. Back in 1965, what could they field today on, on things? It's kind of a weird number to pull out of the blue, isn't it, on things? Now, this army is not going to come out of the east, so I don't think it's talking about uh, the, the uh, China army at all. But here's this army that they're going to take con control of, and if it's not an actual human army, then it's a, a demonic army, which is even worse for the world. And you notice the description of of this army, the description specifically, verse 17, of the horses that this, uh, this army is, is riding on, the means of, of transportation that they have, uh, the breastplates of uh, hyacinth blue and fiery red and sulfur yellow, and the hyacinth blue is deep, deep blue. It's like the blue that you see in a flame. And then we're told that the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. So it's, it's like there's a roaring going out. Now some, uh, some people look at this and they believe that John may be describing uh, 2,000 years ago modern weaponry, something like maybe a tank, uh, or maybe it'll be a demonic being, or maybe it's a weapon that we don't even know about yet. But, but these, the, this army, they are riding on something that has these colors. It has, it, when, whatever the front of it is, it roars like a, a lion. Out of their mouths come fire and smoke and brimstone. And, uh, and, and so you notice also that the death is inflicted by the horses, not by the riders. So uh, uh, there's, there's the, the speculation that it could be something like that, the use of military uh, weaponry that John was unfamiliar with. And by these three plagues, verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power was in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. So perhaps some kind of a vehicle with the ability to shoot off the front and shoot off the back. We don't know uh, it exactly, but he's trying to describe the great destruction that comes out of uh, these things, whatever uh, they are. They are, are no good. Now here, as shocking as, as the entire chapter uh, might be in, in some respects, the most shocking part is filled in the final two uh, verses here. But the rest of mankind, despite all of this, who were not killed by these plagues, and you circle those next three words, at least in your mind. Did not repent. They did not repent. Now notice what it doesn't say. It does not say they could not repent. That would make God responsible. It says they did not repent. That makes them personally responsible. They had room to repent, space to repent, opportunity to repent. They chose, even in the face of this, not to repent. And notice what they did not repent of of the works of their hands, materialism, materialism. They loved it more than, than uh, God, that they would uh, and that they should not worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And, and so they would not repent of their idolatry. 
and the things that they had created to worship. And we know the Bible tells us that the idol that is up in a temple or is in a person's house or these kinds of things, the idol is nothing. You can't, you've got this little statue in a house, and if it wants to go from the living room to the kitchen, you've got to carry it there. It's nothing. But I'll tell you what is something is the demon behind it, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. There's a demon behind idolatry and, and uh and the demons are very, very serious about what they do. So there's a spirit behind idolatry, and there's a spirit that they're tapped into, that they don't want to give that up for uh, God. And then notice in verse 21, and again, God wants to make sure that we understand this in, in this judgment. And they did not repent. Personal responsibility here of their, and then notice what the other things, they wouldn't give up, for God, to, to have a relationship with God. They would, did not repent of their murders or their sorceries uh, or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They love their violence and their murders. When you look at that list, murders and then talks about sorceries. Sorceries is to be tapped into the occult and the things of the occult. You look at the, I mean, just the, I mean, just how the prevalence of the occult and how it's romanticized and all in, in movies and media and all these different books and uh, all these kinds of things. And, uh, and also they, they wouldn't repent of their sorceries. The word sorceries, it means pharmakia. That's, that's what it is in the original language, pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy from it. And, it, and it's talking about mind-altering drugs that were used in, uh, uh, in, in this uh, worship of the occult. You look at the, the amount of money, I mean, whole kingdoms established on the money that's made in the United States on the basis of just drugs being made. And they will not give up their drugs at this point, even to follow, uh, be saved and follow God. Or their sexual immorality, their adultery, their sex, 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 like crazy in the United States and around the world, sex outside of marriage as God has intended it to be, or of their thefts. Now you look at those things. You look at murders, just violence and murders all, all over the place, sorceries, the, the interest, the dabbling, the worship in the occult and the use of drugs, sexual immorality and theft. And what do you got to do is just pick up your morning paper every single day, and it reads just exactly like uh, verses 20 and 21, but it's going to get worse. And there's a spirit behind it that people love and they want, and they want uh, more than God. It's interesting that in verse 20, verse 20 addresses the violation of the commandments that were uh, associated with the first tablet of the law that was given to Moses having to do with man's relationship with God idolatry and these things that instead of the worship of of God and then verse 22 addresses the violation of the commandments that were written on the second tablet of the law that was given to Moses having to do with man's relationship with with his fellow uh, man and they are deliberately willfully incurably at war with every command of God they, they, they will not back down from it. And this is the condition 
of the people in the world at this time. And it's the condition of many, many people already in those ranks in the world today. It's no small thing, the fight that goes on related to the Ten Commandments and the different things and the removal of anything that even speaks of a commandment from God from our public uh, discussion and platform in the United States of America. There's a war that's going on related to that. It's a spiritual war that is going on. There are people that are, will be a part of these ranks of people, this kind of people, that are alive today in, in that, that battle, in, in, in the fight that they're, they're engaged in. They're as zealous as these people uh, will be. The interesting thing here in, in all of this is as you look at, at it, 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 what happens here with the judgment and they dig in and, and, they're, and they're unrepentant and, and they, they just are going to fight God all of the way when you've got a situation like that either God is going to win and we'll have the world that he desires or they're going to win and we're going to have the world they desire but they both can't win they both can't win and there are people that are like that they will fight God to the death. And, they will, and, and it will require God's judgment to put a stop to them and put a stop to their, their influence. And so you've got this war that, that, that we're either God's going to win or we're going to have the world the way that he wants it to be. These people or, or these people are going to win and we're going to have the world that they desire it, it to be. And it would be a terrible, horrifying world. So God, out of his love, out of his holiness, out of his righteousness, he will not let these people win. He must bring this judgment to an end in, in the rebellion. And, and he will bring that rebellion to an end. And it's his love and it's his grace and it's his righteousness that will cause him to do it. It's really a picture of how evil men's hearts can become uh, when they would rather live uh, for evil than for God. They did not repent. They're personally responsible for their uh, decisions here and the judgment that comes upon them. And then quickly in this uh, chapter, and I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, and he was clothed with a cloud. Uh, so uh, interesting, here's an angel clothed with a cloud and the description of him. And a rainbow was on his head. And his face was like the sun. It wasn't exactly the sun. It was like the sun. And his feet like pillars of fire. So shining from head to toe in, in just beauty and awesomeness. Uh, and, and so sometimes people read this and they look and say, well, that's got to be uh, Jesus. But it, I don't think it is Jesus because he's so awesome. They say, well, it, has, it, it probably is Jesus. No, it, because it says another angel. And the word another means uh, alon, and it means another of the same kind. In other words, this angel is probably ref, it refers to an angel that is like the seven angels that have sounded the the trumpet. He's just another angel. Now this 
uh, angel, as we're going to see in verse 2. Notice he had a book open in his hand. Notice that book. Then he sets his right foot on the sea of the earth and his left foot on the land. So he's a big fella. He's a big fella there. But again, I don't think that it can be uh, Jesus because nowhere do we see Jesus returning to the earth, putting his foot down upon the earth from the time of, of the rapture of the church, the, the, the single great uh, foot uh, pressure that the world is waiting for at the end of the great tribulation will be Jesus' foot to touch the Mount of Olives. And then the Mount of Olives splits open and he makes an entry into Jerusalem. And here is this angelic being that is touching the earth prior to that event. I don't think it's Jesus. So he's got this little book in his hand and he's, he's a big guy. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. So he cries out, seven thunders come in uh, behind uh, uh, all of that. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, John said, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So the seven thunders utter something and they utter something intelligible. Because John is going, it is a communication of some kind. Because John's going to write down what he heard those thunders say. And right when he's about to write them down, another voice prohibits him from doing that and says, don't write uh, those things down um, at, at all. And, and John doesn't. And, and uh, he's told to seal them up. Whatever was communicated, he was not to record them. Now, we don't know what the seven thunders uttered. Does anybody know what the seven thunders uttered? I hope you don't. Nobody knows what the seven thunders uttered. But there are, you know, papers written, commentaries, you know, that talk about what, was what the seven thunders uttered. John's the only mere man who ever knew what the seven thunders communicated and he took that information to his death and then into heaven upon his death. We don't have any idea what, what they, they uttered, though there's considerable speculation about what was uttered. Why speculate about what you have no hope of, of knowing at all? I mean, even if you lay this great case down, you can't be, you know, conclusive uh, related to it. I am so thankful that early in my Christian uh, life that um, I decided that in order for everything to work out for my mental health, uh, that I was going to need to get used to mystery in a relationship with God. And uh, as the old saying uh, goes, that uh, a God small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship because he would be smaller than our minds. And if he's smaller than our minds, then he's smaller than us. Why would I worship someone who is smaller than me? Anytime you have the finite, you and I, in a relationship with the infinite, we've got to get used to mystery. And I, and I am convinced here is something that we do not know. And, and do, you, do you realize not knowing what the seven thunders uttered is no detriment to your walk with the Lord? It's no detriment to your, the effectiveness of your ministry. If we needed to know what those seven thunders said in order to be a greater Christian than we could otherwise be or be more effective in our ministry, then God would have told us what they said. 
And I look at this book, and the, and the Bible declares that, uh, related to the Bible, that it thoroughly furnishes us unto every good work. What is revealed is there. And, and I think it's very, very important for us. Never, ever, you know, feel the, the pressure to speak into God's silence. It's important to honor the silences of God. What he doesn't say as well as what he does say because there's reasons for it. We don't need to know what those seven thunders do you know that there, I think there's, God, this word of the Bible is just so perfect that God takes it up, every single thing about every single doctrine, he takes it right to the line where we can understand uh, the greatest clarity on any particular subject, and he knows to go one inch over that is to introduce confusion. And, and it's true. So he just tells us what it is that we need to know. So we don't need to know what the seven thunders uttered. Anybody know what the seven thunders? No, I said we don't need to know on any of that, do we? But apparently, we need to know that they uttered. You say, why is that? I don't know. You've got to go to another church to find that out. I've, I'm done thinking hard in, on, on these things. And, and so then notice in verse 5 that the attention turns back to the angel, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land. He then raises his hand to heaven, this huge angel, and he swore by him, that is the Father, who lives forever and ever, who created uh, heaven and the things that are in it, and the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it in other words here is the infinite uh, God he's gonna swear an oath now and he says I'm gonna swear an oath by the true and the living God the creator you know of all things in other words what I'm about to swear in this oath in this name because there's no higher name this oath is going to come to pass and and here is what it is that there should be delay no longer and that's what he declares that there should be a delay no longer a delay in what a delay in finishing the mystery of God notice in verse 7 but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel when he was about to sound the mystery of God uh, about to sound the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets and so a delay in what a delay in, there would be no longer a delay in the finishing of the mystery of God as he declared to his servant the prophets what did he declare to his servants the prophets all the way through the Old Testament that God is going to establish his kingdom on this earth and it is going to be a righteous kingdom and it is going to be a peaceful kingdom I think it's best described in chapter 11, verse 15. And you notice, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And God now, the angel now declares, all right, no more delay in this. Uh, no more waiting, no more space to repent, no more. Now we're going to uh, bring this thing uh, forward in earnest. And then this voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, and so it spoke to John, 
go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so he's told to go take this uh, little book. It's, it's, uh, it's literally a little scroll. It's not the scroll that the Father held and gave to Jesus earlier in the Revelation. This is a smaller scroll that is, is spoken of uh, here. So he is told to go and take that from the, the hand of the angel. And so I went to the angel and I said to him, uh, give me the little book, uh, pretty please. Uh, no, he just said it. He had, felt he was quite safe there. Give me the little book. That's what he'd been told to do. And then the angel said to him, take and eat it, and it will, be, it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And the imagery here is from God's commission of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3 where the Lord took and he uh, gave his word to Ezekiel. He commissioned Ezekiel to prophesy for him to the rebellious uh, children of uh, Israel. And he said, And you shall speak my words to them whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give to you. And now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And then I spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. And moreover, he said to me, Son of man, Eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. And so I opened my mouth, Ezekiel said. He caused me to eat the scroll, and he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give to you. And so I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, Ezekiel goes on to declare, And so the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, and the heat of my spirit. And so here is John. He obeys just as the angel had declared. Uh, It would be this uh, word, this scroll that was given to him. It was uh, sweet like honey in his mouth, but it went into his belly. And to eat something is to internalize it. He's being given a message that is he is to internalize, become a part of his life that he's going to declare. But it was sweet in his mouth, and then it became bitter in, in his stomach. And, and there is for every child of God, anyone that lives for God, anyone that serves the Lord and, and speaks for him in the world, there is that, that combination of being faithful to deliver God's message of this judgment that is to come, that his kingdom is going to come. It's going to be established. He is going to win. And as we partake of God's word, there's a sweetness in the knowledge of that in our mouths. But at the same time, there's a bitterness within our stomach and inside of us when we realize that the only way that God is going to be able to establish that kingdom because of the wickedness of man is going to require this kind of judgment because of the stubbornness of man and his rebellion against God. It's a twofold thing. I had a fellow come up to me a few weeks ago, and uh, he's, he's struggling with an eternal lake of fire. He's struggling with eternal judgment on things. 
He kind of wanted to believe in annihilation, like Seventh-day Adventists teach, which is false. And, and, he, and he's fighting the thing. And it's, it's not a struggle for me. Again, I'm not smarter than God. I don't fight over these things with him. It doesn't make me better than anyone that, that necessarily does. But I accept things. I know God to be gracious. I know him to be righteous. I know that if he'll save me, he'll save anybody. I know that to be true. But, but, in, in, term, uh, uh, but in terms of, of all of this, it doesn't mean I rejoice in it. Remember when, remember when God used the Assyrians and he used the Babylonians to judge the southern kingdom? Uh, he used the Babylonians to judge the southern kingdom of Judah. And as he, as he used that to, to judge the southern kingdom of, of Judah, the surrounding nations piled on and they added more judgment against the Jews than God had intended. And then God spoke through his prophets to those neighboring nations, and he said, because you piled on, and because you rejoiced in me judging these people, I will now judge you because of your attitude. God does only what he knows that he needs to do and has to do, and he doesn't go one inch over that, not one inch over that. And at the same time, I hope I've represented this, we're going through this particular book, that as we see all of this happening that's going to happen on the world, there's no joy in my heart over it. I am joyful for the kingdom that it births. I am sad that it requires this to allow this kingdom to be birthed. It's the bittersweet thing of the servant of the Lord. And here is for, for all of us. And John is feeling the same thing. He is tasting the same thing. And then he said to me, the angel did, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And uh, notice it doesn't say that he will prophesy to many nations, peoples, nations, tongues, and kings, but about them. In other words, he is, he is going to be prophesying about the future of the world, which he did when he finished this vision there uh, and, and continued his ministry in the island of Patmos and, and then beyond and declaring this great revelation and that ministry of the Apostle John continues into this room uh, right now. So we'll stop there tonight. We'll pick it up in chapter 11 next time.